The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for May 16th, 2019, the abortion ban edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C. John Dickerson, for the very last time, he is John Dickerson of CBS's This Morning. John, you're in New York. And tomorrow's your last day hosting uh, this morning, huh? Yeah, yeah, I'm in New York. My my uh, uh, office, all my books, all my things are already moved over to 60 Minutes. So I'm I'm in this state of uh, of in betweenness. And when most people listen to this, I will have uh, probably already had my last show. And then if they're listening to it between CTM and the evening news, they'll really be confused because I've been uh, anchoring the evening news this week. So. <sighs> It's a it's a big it's it's a big wonderful thing. All right, and then Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale Law School and the best-selling book Charged is in Philadelphia because she's she's about to give a commencement speech, right, Emily? <laughs> I am. Wow, that was such a big windup. Yes, I'm honored to be giving the commencement speech <laughs> at Temple Law School imminently. Hopefully I will give good as opposed yeah. to bad advice to all these lovely law school graduates in Philadelphia. Um, Just tell them that the future is ahead of them. Uh, <laughs> the it fu- may not be bright, but it's in front of them. Time will tell. On this week's show, the shocking wave of anti-abortion legislation that is sweeping the nation. How is it going to break on our shores? What will the Supreme Court do about it? Then the president's or maybe the administration's showdown with Iran. Is it going to lead to war? Then the case for civic religion. Can we restore America by worshiping our civic ideals? We'll have a guest, Eric Liu, to talk to us about that. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And a reminder, Slate Day is coming up. We're going to have a live show in New York on June 8th in the afternoon. It's going to be a full day of live podcast. Our show, our show is going to be at the SVA Theater at 2 o'clock on June 8th, Saturday. There's still some tickets left, but go get them because they're, they're going fast and we want to see you there. There are also all access tickets that will allow you to see things, shows from the waves. My wife is going to be up there. There's Outward. Uh, there's going to be a, a trivia contest. There's going to be a mom and dad are fighting play date. There's going to be all kinds of fun stuff happening at Slate Day and uh, we want to see you there. So go to slate.com slash live to get tickets to our show on Saturday, June 8th. At the SVA that would be your wife, Hannah Rosen, by the way. What, why did why did you put that in there? I don't know. It just seems like nice to have her name in case people are wondering who she is. Yeah. All right. That's Hannah Rosen. H-A-N-N-A-R-O-S-I-N. <laughs> and just remind listeners, David, uh, what time again on the 8th of June? At 2 o'clock on the 8th of June. There you go. All right. There you go. Emily, for years you have been forecasting the wave of anti-abortion legislation that is now upon us, the wave that is is breaking across the country in Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Ohio. Tell us what is happening, how it happened, why is it all happening now? What's happening is that a number of red states that have wanted to ban abortion for years see an opportunity in the new uh, Supreme Court, the switch of Justice Anthony Kennedy for Justice Brett Kavanaugh looks to them like their fifth vote for overturning Roe versus Wade. 
There are some states who are going at this in a more incremental fashion. There, we can. There's a law in Indiana that's one example of that. Another law in Louisiana we can talk about. But there are a number of states that have chosen to just mount a frontal attack on Roe by, you know, effectively banning abortion outright. And there are some minor differences among those pieces of legislation. But the basic idea here is. It's not time to reduce the number of abortions. It's time to end abortion in our state borders. And so the question is one of tactics, right? I mean, once you have these five apparent votes on the Supreme Court, it's not surprising that opponents of abortion would try to test and see how far, how fast the Supreme Court is willing to go. And we just don't know the answer to that yet because some of the litigation is already in front of the court, but they haven't taken a case yet. And some of it, you know, these laws like the one in Alabama, that's the most dramatic and riveting, that one just passed. So it'll take a little while um, to get to the court. Emily, can you actually, just to get into some of the specifics, can you talk about the two different strategy. So so what are the incrementalists? What are the kinds of things the incrementalists are doing? And then what are the kinds of things that are happening in Alabama and, and Georgia? And then some other state just had an eight, eight, Arkansas maybe had an eight-week ban that passed. Totally. Missouri. So the incrementalists Missouri, no. are doing things like in Indiana, uh, they have a law that um, you're not allowed to have an abortion if your fetus has been diagnosed with Down syndrome or another disability. So that's one sort of incremental way of going at it. There's also a requirement that you have your ultrasound at least 18 hours before the abortion. That doesn't sound like such a big deal, but it means that then you have to go make two trips instead of one. And that convinced some judges in uh, on the Seventh Circuit for Court of Appeals that that would be an undue burden under Casey versus Planned Parenthood, which is the 1992 decision that interpreted Roe to say the state does have an interest in protecting the life of the fetus, but it can't go so far as to put an undue burden on a woman's right to abortion. So those are two examples of the kinds of incrementalist laws. And we saw a lot of these laws several years ago when Republicans ran the tables on state houses. And it looked like the Supreme Court had rejected this approach in Whole Woman's Health, which is the case out of Texas a couple of years ago. And this is the whole idea that the way to persuade judges and people that abortion is bad is to say that it harms women. Women, and to put all these barriers in place that look like or are are professed to be about protecting women's health. It looked like the Supreme Court rejected that. In fact, the Supreme Court did reject that. So what's odd about the Louisiana law is it's basically the same as the Texas law that the Supreme Court struck down. And it's in the same federal court of appeal circuit. We're talking about the Fifth Circuit. So it looks like the Fifth Circuit just shaking its fist at the Supreme Court, except that, of course, the Fifth Circuit thinks that the answer may be different now that Kavanaugh is on the court. So that's one of the cases that the court might take right away. And the immediate impact, if Louisiana's legislation goes into effect, is to reduce the number of abortion clinics in the state from three to one. So that would have a big impact on women. It's not the like complete ban on abortion effectively that Alabama or Kentucky or Mississippi or a couple other states have in their sites. So so talk about the the cases that are proposing to be that are complete ban cases. The so Alabama 
has a basically an outright ban. Georgia is pretty close to a ban. It's after six weeks, right? It's sort of the the heartbeat this, bill, yeah. The harder heartbeat, um, and both have both of them have criminal penalties for for doctors attached to them. Uh, do those what what is the what what is the legal progression of those cases? What are the possible legal progressions of those cases? And do those cases even end up at the Supreme Court? And also, is there a is there kind of a a uh, double reverse strategy of liberals to get those cases in front of the Supreme Court to force the Supreme Court to take one of those cases? I think liberals don't really stand anything to gain by forcing the court to take these cases. I think if you uh, are pro-choice, what you are hoping happens is that district courts and courts of appeal stop these laws from going into effect, and the Supreme Court just lets that lie, right? That would be the status quo of Roe, at least to the point of protecting the idea of some right to abortion within these state boundaries. The law in Georgia, they're basically expanding the definition of an abortion to encompass self-termination. And so this is a way of potentially prosecuting women, right? And the reason that that would happen, and it's already happened in some states, not lots and lots of women, but it has happened to women. What's at stake here is medical abortion, right? I mean, nobody really imagines that we will go back to the days of like mass coat hanger abortions, though that fear is, you know, present when you start talking about banning abortion. What's more likely is that women will start ordering the drugs mesoprostol and mifepristone over the internet and self-administering abortions and then making them look like miscarriages, which is, in fact, how those drugs work. If you're worried about that kind of underground effect of banning surgical abortions in clinics, you have to expand the definition of abortion to encompass self-termination. And so the people who pass these laws are saying, oh, no, no, we're not going to prosecute women. We're just going to prosecute people who perform the abortion i.e. doctors, who the anti-choice movement prefers to call abortionists. But the thing is, with these drugs and self-administration, it is women who perform the abortions. And so that's why that's such a dramatic shift in the Georgia laws. Sorry, Emily, just to, to labor on the, the likely progression of the cases, what prevents these cases from getting to the Supreme Court, the Alabama and Georgia cases? Why would those not get to the Supreme Court? And why would they get to the Supreme Court? Well, they're just completely flagrantly violating Roe versus Wade. And so all the Supreme Court has to do is say, you know what? We are not going here. We're going to leave the law the way it's been and not take the case. And then presumably the lower courts will respect the Supreme Court's decisions in Roe and Casey, et cetera, and strike down these laws, right? I mean, if you are John Roberts and you are interested in preserving the legacy of the court, it looks much better to take incremental steps rather than to just run the tables on one huge case and just end abortion outright in big parts of the United States. And that's a strategy Roberts has pursued in other lines of cases. Does the undue burden, it would seem to me that it, it creates quite an undue burden uh, for someone's ability to have access uh, to abortions if you outlaw them completely in a state. So if, so that would that would seem in the Alabama instance, would that be a way of looking at it and saying this is just antithetical to the way we've ruled before or is there something I'm missing there? No, I think that's absolutely true. And that's why it's easier to imagine 
Roberts in particular, but, you know, Kavanaugh's made some somewhat pragmatic signs since he's joined the court, too. It's easier to see the appeal of taking a law like the one in Indiana or Louisiana and trying to figure out some way to pretend to distinguish it from Whole Women's Health, the case out of Texas a few years ago that looked like it cut off these incrementalist attacks that are really about, you know, making it impossible to operate a clinic, right? Like if your doctor can't get admitting privileges anywhere, then you've effectively shut down the clinic, but you don't say that's what you're doing. Rolling back that part of the law will feel like a safer thing to do, less dramatic headlines, more confusion. Emily, I don't know the answer to this. Medical abortions with with the two drugs, the M drugs, which, which I'm not going to try to pronounce, how much of the abortion demand do, do those take now and how far into a pregnancy can you take them and is it is it can can those of us you know can can people who are pro-choice take some comfort in the idea that assuming women are not going to be prosecuted for this which is a we'll put an asterisk on that but that that it, at least there will be significant access to those drugs and thus thus a lot of women will be able to to still use those so at the moment, medical abortions, which are these drug-induced abortions, make up about 27% of all abortions, according to what I'm finding quickly. They're rising because this whole idea that you can take the drugs, you can do more of it at home on your own, is appealing to a lot of women. In European countries, the percentage is much higher of women who have abortions through these drugs. Whether the access continues to them or not really depends on how these laws shake out, right? I mean, if you are anti-choice and you live in one of these states where it's possible to pass one of these near-complete bans on abortion, you do not want women to all of a sudden just like order the drugs over the internet and call up a doctor in New York to get the consultation they need and keep having the abortions. That's the sort of sticking point here, right? So then you have to do things like try to make it a criminal act to help someone get an abortion by crossing state lines or just picking up the phone and calling someone. You ban telemedicine abortions, which some states have done. So you can't consult with the abortion provider over the phone or over video conference. In the end, though, it's so easy to take these drugs. And I don't want to like, you know, you're supposed to get, you need to have some backup if something goes wrong. But in general, it's like miscarrying. And you asked David how far into a pregnancy. Well, you know, the drugs in the United States, I think, are still only approved up to like 10 or maybe 11 weeks. But in other countries, women take them onwards into their pregnancies. Now, it becomes more difficult the same way having a later miscarriage is more difficult. There's more of a chance for complications. You might need more backup. But all of these questions are unsettled. It's like there are these two forces that are going to collide. This desire to truly wipe out or, you know, effectively eliminate abortion in large swaths of the United States and that access to these drugs. And one more important thing, there's this interesting organization in New York called Genuity. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. And they did a study a couple of years ago where they ordered these drugs over the internet from all kinds of manufacturers like in India and other countries. And then they tested them to see if Whoa, they were boy. in fact Mythian, right? Like, are we, is this yeah. a drug we can rely on? And it turned out that most of the drugs were what they purported to be. In other words, they were high enough quality mm. that women really could take oh, them good. and have an abortion. 
John, what's your read on how the politics of this shakes out in the short term? Uh, of course, like as a substantive issue, the denial of access to abortion is a, is a huge, huge uh, dismaying development. As, a, as politics, does this you know, animate Democratic voters? Does this animate Republican voters? Does it, is it going to be state by state? Is it, does it be, you know, is it likely to fade away by the time of the election? What's your, what's your take on that so, so far? I don't know. I, I, yeah, I think you I think that, well, in the short term, it animates a lot of people trying to raise money for their elections and um, and for very and for political causes in the moment. Now, um, what's I guess what interests me is um, a, a couple of different ways and these have different timelines. So if one of the challenges for Donald Trump is going to be what what about those group of voters who found him personally objectionable? but uh, held their nose and voted for him anyway um, for one of a number of reasons. One was the control of the Supreme Court. Other was what he was doing. Uh, they knew that he, he would appoint uh, pro-life judges um, uh, or judges that would rule against uh, abortion rights um, or they didn't like Hillary Clinton. Those voters, there are not going to be as many of those voters this time around for for Donald Trump. Um, it, it's safe to assume. Um, so are there other issues um, or two things? One, there won't be as many of those voters or they'll need to be newly energized um, because now things that were just theories about the way the president could operate have now all come true in terms of um, fulfilling. And I'm talking about this specific group of voters who were worried about him. So can you animate them on some other issue? And this would be it. And this would be um, uh, because what you would hope is get into a long protracted battle with liberals um, and remind Republican voters what they don't like about liberals so that you get a negative partisan vote. In other words, I'm not voting to support Donald Trump. I'm voting against um, the liberals who become enraged about these various abortion bills. Um, I don't know how many voters we're talking about in that class, but I think the these kinds of issues, whether it's abortion or immigration or any of these other red meat issues, I think should be thought of in that context. Um, but I guess we'll have to see where we are by the end of this, um, by the end, it was sort of when we get into the general election in terms of the questions, um, and, and I'm interested in what Emily thinks about this, you know, it was usually the case that the, that Republicans cared a lot more about the Supreme Court. There are people who now say, oh no, now everybody on the left gets it. Um, and they are going to be, they are going to find the Supreme Court and who gets to name the next picks as animating an issue for liberals as it was for conservatives. Um, do you think that's right, Emily? I mean, obviously they've always known it was an issue, but whether it's the kind that really turns out voters and really in, uh, powers them uh, it, it, as much as it does conservatives, that's a question. I mean, that's a great question. Do we have any polling data that shows that? Because without it, I'm skeptical. Like the left has not galvanized people in the same way. Now, there is a lot of publicity about this. And so maybe that is starting to change. And I see people feeling angry, understandably, with the Obama administration for the judicial vacancies that it left open. And then, of course, there's the whole fight over Merrick Garland, which is tough on people who are interested in having a different kind of Supreme Court. So you would think that politically people on the left would start to get it. But I, until we actually have some data that shows that, I wonder. And I think one of the th questions about the abortion debate is, in addition to the ones you were asking, John, is, you know, if the Supreme Court doesn't 
overturn Roe. And and if all these laws, these the Georgia, Alabama kinds of laws are blocked by the lower courts. And that but then the Supreme Court does allow for states to shut down clinics with this more incremental approach like in Louisiana. Will that play out in the media as a kind of like compromise, almost centrist measure in a way that then lulls people into continued complacency about the Supreme Court? Probably. You know, I tried to try to look at it from the conservative point of view and how they would try and bait uh, bait liberals. Um, the opposite is also true, which is that if some uh, Democrat finds a way to turn this into an issue that's broader um, than just uh, pro-abortion rights or anti-abortion rights, but whether it's the kind of meddling in women's lives and women's health, uh, which then attaches to um, – strong feelings of autonomy among a huge and important part of the electorate and then baits either President Trump or other Republicans. And you had a lot of it in Alabama um, from these 25 male lawmakers who passed this this law saying things that were – uh, objectionable to, to um, any woman's ears about a woman's body and and so forth. If you can pull them off sides on that issue, then as a Democrat, it becomes something that is um, that's sort of more more largely offensive among a huge uh, as a gender more, and it goes beyond abortion. Actually, just to wrap this topic up, what is so galling about this is that it's clear. Those who are, are seeking these bans on abortion, I think, are truly are motivated uh, by you know a concern about life. I don't. I think that it is not. There's no gainsaying that people have a very strong motivation. Some of it's religious, it's moral, it's it's humane, and they they have a real sense that that they're what they're doing is acting in the best interests of what they perceive to be a child. So I think that 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 like you have to concede that. But what is frustrating as hell is that it is coupled with attacks on contraception, attacks on sex education, low investment in funding for early childhood development, low investment in public schools, low investment in maternal health in those states. And so the, it's the states with the worst outcomes for maternal health are also states which are offering the biggest attacks on, on abortion. So it would be it would be a lot easier to, to stomach these attacks if you're if you're somebody who who truly believes in this this cause, this pro-life cause, is if it were coupled with with a genuine attempt to reduce unwanted pregnancy, to improve maternal health, and to improve the health of the children who are born from these pregnancies that may or may not be wanted, and and that is what is what is really infuriating um, because it's it's so the hypocrisy is so grotesque in that case that the the one aspect of life is chosen and all these other aspects of life are rejected and and I it irritates me. Well, and there's also the lack of interest in expanding access to long-acting, super-effective contraception, which prevents abortions more effectively than any of the other strategies. And then I think just an unwillingness to reckon with this, I think, at least for me, fundamental truth, which is that if women can't control when they get to have a baby, it's really hard to see how they can be free in the world. Like, how are we supposed to deal with that contradiction. I don't see uh, people who oppose abortion coming up with a good answer or even really wanting to have the debate on those terms. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. Today in our Slate Plus segment, we're going to talk about the confusing case of the Harvard Law professor who's being drummed out of one of his university jobs because he represented Harvey Weinstein. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. 
This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GabFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Heard this one before. A Republican president egged on by John Bolton declares a Middle Eastern nation a pariah hell-bent on obtaining weapons of mass destruction a sponsor of terrorism, a violator of international agreements and norms, then gins up a showdown to provoke an armed conflict. This is not Iraq in 2003. This is Iran in 2019. John Dickerson doesn't, it's not, it's not, it's not good when you hear things about aircraft carriers, Straits of Hormuz, missiles. Are we heading to a war with Iran? I don't know. I mean, you know, I was thinking about this with respect to our abortion conversation before, which is that, you know, uh, in political debates in the past, there has been a kind of a bumper um, of norms that you could could assume even if you didn't know how the ball was going to bounce. I've now got bumpers and balls. If I can get some flippers, we'll have a full pinball game here. Um, You you could sort of say, well, the norms are going to kick in at some point, so this won't go all the way. But in a time where it feels like all the norms are are um, being shredded, it's it's hard to know where where to stop one's analysis. So because here's one thing I'm that is in my mind. I mean, the president who ran for office um, said that the Iraq war was the greatest mistake in U.S. history, he said the president that came uh, that George W. Bush lied the country uh, based on false intelligence uh, into that war. He then repeatedly attacked his intelligence, uh, the intelligence uh, officials across the government for their um, lack of skill and kept referring to the the intelligence that led up to the Iraq war uh, when he made those attacks. Then as president, he has continued to attack his um, intelligence uh, officials and the people who work for them. Okay, so now he's going to do – he's going to basically make uh, an intelligence-based um, assault on Iran. Like it just seems insane relative to what he, he believed before and believed more, most recently. So I, I think it's um, – you know, by, based by all of that, I would think it's unlikely except that every time you try to reason something by the previous instances or words of the president, you are you do not come up with a successful result. So I don't really know. Um, uh, I don't really know where we are right now. But um, Pompeo's flight to Iraq to um, 
uh, to warn the Iraqis about what Iran might be doing. Mitt Romney's looking at the intelligence, which apparently has basically the most, the strongest intelligence is these the movement of these missiles from um, Iran or Iranian-backed groups that are could potentially be aimed at U.S. assets in Iraq or U.S. assets in Syria. Um, and I get so the fact that Mitt Romney felt like it was credible enough um, is a little different because Mitt Romney's been critical of the administration in a couple of different ways, um, and could you know the, the, there's no particular reason for him to buy into this um, out of affection for the president. So I'm not really quite sure what I think about all of this, but it certainly um, it certainly smells like they're um, creating the conditions for something where something could go wrong and you'd have a conflict basically because of, uh, you know, you've got um, everybody kind of amped up for one. So, Emily, this in, in some ways, all of this this problem, all of this escalation stems from the president's initial decision a couple of years ago to withdraw from the Iran Accord. One year ago, was- like exactly, I think. Oh, was it one year ago? God, if, if everything time May, time, May time, time is <laughs> it's both compressed and elongated these days. Yes. If you told me it was seven years ago, I might have believed it. Um, th- so he to withdraw from the Iran deal, which was a deal which our European allies are still abiding with that Iran has continued until very recently to to stick with as well. And the, the thinking is that um, you know, insofar as Iran is now escalating. Iran is returning to its interests in in pursuing uh, some kind of nuclear research and nuclear enrichment. It's because the U.S. has slapped these very difficult sanctions on them, and and that's their leverage. And and it is really odd to think for the president to to you know accuse the Iranians of being cheaters and Iranian Iran being this rogue state when when. Iran's roguish behavior seems totally to be driven by something we are, we forced them to do, or we didn't force them to do, but something which is the natural response to our withdrawing from this accord, which the rest of the world seems to think is a, is a good accord. Right. But the Trump administration's concern and priority was not consistency of logic, right? I mean, the idea was this deal sucked, we're going to tear it up, and we're going to force a better one on the Iranians by exerting maximum pressure, they're going to cave and oh, what we really want is regime change. So we're going to bring the current regime to its knees. If that's your goal, then you don't want diplomacy to work in particular. And then the question becomes like, okay, well, what lengths will you really go to? And do you really mean it about putting, you know, hundreds of thousands of troops on the ground? I think we've all assumed that the Trump administration doesn't mean it because an actual real military encounter with Iran would be giant. It would make the Iraq war look relatively small by comparison. And the appetite for that in the United States right now, I mean, it would also feel, I think, to a lot of people like it was coming out of nowhere. But when you think about John Bolton's philosophy for the Middle East and America's presence there, it's consistent with at least threatening and doing all this saber rattling and then counting on the Iranians to be uh, to be coerced into backing down. What we don't know is what happens when they don't back down, (laughs) right? 
here's what here's what I don't here's what I don't get. The country's not anxious to go to war with Iran. So um, this would seem to be nuts in that regard. After, you know, Iraq was a different case. The country was in a different place after 9-11. Secondly, I talked about the norms falling away earlier. One of the norms that's fallen away is U.S. cooperation with its European allies. So this week you had a major general um, uh, of the British forces saying he didn't see these, uh, any new mischief from the Iranians, basically undermining the U.S. case. And then the central command, the Pentagon central command, had to come out and say, oh, no, the Brits are wrong. So in the old days, when you had tight cohesion between the allies, um, and remember, the White House always said during the Bush years, you know, uh, we didn't lie about WMD. Everybody in Europe uh, and Tony, our ally, Tony Blair, um, you know, they all looked at the intelligence and they said the same thing. Um, and in this case, you have immediate contradictions from what would have been former U.S. allies who no longer feel the norm of backing up the, the Yanks because the Yanks have been, you know, kicking them in the shins in various different ways from NATO elsewhere. Um, I guess one other point I'd like to throw in there is one Stephen Colbert made, which is at least in the Iraqi case uh, during the Bush administration, they felt a need to make the case publicly, Colin Powell going before the United Nations, et cetera. Here, um, it's just treated as um, kind of evidentially true. I mean, nobody's nobody in the administration is really trying to make the case. Um, it's all happening in leaks and uh, and threats, uh, which is and oh, by the way, where in God's name is is Congress? I mean, Mitt Romney's asking for a special briefing, but um, you know, this war making thing is supposed to be their role. So, uh, Atlas Obscura, my company, just sent a, a first trip to Iran a couple of weeks ago. One of my colleagues went along with it, so we sent a group of of a dozen travelers to Iran, and they had an delightful time. They had an amazing time, incredibly welcoming, uh, just. A country filled with wonders, and it's fascinating. We have a couple of other trips scheduled later this year. Uh, I continue to believe, like that the the U.S. has we've basically picked a side. the The Trump administration has taken this to its 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 furthest extreme. We have picked a side in the regional conflict of the Middle East, which is we've picked the Saudis and and the and to and of course we always pick Israel. So Israel and the Saudis, and Israel and the Saudis both for different reasons, have antagonism towards Iran. Israel's antagonism to, towards Iran is based on the fear of a nuclear weapon as, and, and being a possible victim of it, as a, of a nuclear attack from Iran. The Saudis, it's just a, it's like a basic regional power conflict. And the, the Jared Kushner and the president have been extremely buddy-buddy with the Saudi regime and support it. And I just, I continue to not understand why the Saudi, why if you're going to pick a side in that region, it, it needs to be the Saudis. The Saudis have a terrible human rights record. They are, you know, fomenting mischief of the worst sort throughout the region. The Yemen civil war, which both Iran and, and Saudi Arabia have a role in, the Saudis clear to, clearly are, are worse war criminals in that war. Um, and, and, you know, the Saudis do have more oil so I guess that's that's a big reason. And so they have traditionally had stronger U.S. ties and they didn't have an anti-American revolution. But if you think about like who is really, you know, who, who which country and, and it's the ideology associated with that country, which one is the greater threat to the United States? I don't think it's a clear case that it's Iran. And it just I it just bothers me that we have picked a side here and and that the president is now going along or that the president's people are now ginning up this this conflict. I, th I think you're, but going back to your point, John, I think there there's just no appetite 
no public appetite for any kind of war there. I mean, imagine if we we would have we would have sort of swept the region. We would have had war in Syria, war in Iraq, war in Iran, war in Afghanistan. It would it would be like a, you know it's like a game of risk for these people. And I would just add one other point to that that occurs to me, which is that in other instances when the president says things that aren't so, um, you see it in the, with respect to trade policy when the president says that the, the Chinese are making tariff payments into the U.S. Treasury. Even in that instance where every Republican breathing um, knows that the that consumers and companies are paying those tariffs, they are super highly reluctant to say anything out loud to contradict the president. In the case of conflict, we haven't yet seen, I think I'm right about this, an instance where the president's um, predilection for saying things that aren't so um, leads to actual you know, uh, military conflict and a military operation um, where people are like living and dying. Um, and that, it would seem to me, to, would put a new kind of test to the extraordinary cohesion we've seen between the president and his party. So... I think anyone who's been living in America for the past few years has noticed that it hasn't been the most um, politically congenial, politically agreeable country. <laughs> People haven't been getting on maybe in the way that we all dream that they could. Uh, and we are joined now by Eric Liu, who is the CEO of Citizen University. He's also the author of a new book, Become America. And he's the founder of an enterprise, of a venture, of a, an activity called Civic Saturday. And uh we invited Eric in because uh, I mean he's an old friend. He used to write for Slate back in the day. Um, but he and I had a conversation out in Seattle at a conference that Emily and I were both at about sort of this idea of civic or civic obligation, civic religion, civic activity, and Eric's uh, you know trying to do something about it. So I wanted him to come in and talk to us about what civic religion is, what Civic Saturday is, and then and then why uh, he thinks it offers some some remedies for some of the the misery that we're in right now. So, uh, Eric, welcome. I'm so glad to be here, David. Uh, so, can you tell us? I, I think Civic Saturday is the is the is the point of entry that I'd love to get at. What is Civic Saturday? Where did it come from? And and what's the point of it? Yeah. So, Civic Saturday is one of the programs that we run out of our organization, Citizen University, and this is a, a program that we started four days after the 2016 election. Uh, and what Civic Saturdays are is basically a, a gathering that is a civic analog to a faith gathering. It's not church or synagogue or mosque, but it has the arc of a faith gathering. And it is fundamentally about what you just described a moment ago as American civic religion, right? The idea that we have a creed, that we have a set of values that have to be nurtured by remembering and recommitting to certain deeds to actually deliver on those promises. Uh, and that that work is best done in the context of not only fellowship, but of ritual, right? Uh, and so when you come to a Civic Saturday, people will sing together and will turn to the strangers next to us and talk about a common question. Uh, there are readings of texts from the American tradition that you might think of as civic scripture, right? Uh, th there's a civic sermon that follows that, that tries to make some moral sense of the times we're in, but connect the dots to the choices that each of us has to make wherever we may be living and whatever say we may have uh, uh, in the affairs of our times. And then afterwards, people form up into circles that are not just study circles, but organizing and activism circles. Like, okay, what are we going to do to connect uh, our, our you know, kind of rekindled sense of uh, shared purpose and uh, reckoning with the times and our values 
uh, to actual concrete action in our community. And as I say, we started these four days after the election in 2016 uh, because we felt like there was just such a palpable uh, degree of everything you were describing, the angst, the upheaval, not just among progressives, frankly, just all across the board. It had been such a scarring, uh, revelatory uh, election season, kind of laying bare these deep divides of worldview and these deep uh, uh, drivers of pain uh, in our politics. And uh, um, as soon as we started them uh, in Seattle, we thought, okay, with four days' notice, we'll get 20, 30 people. And 250 people came to cram this basement bookstore uh, reading room. Uh, and then we were off to the races. People in other cities asked us to bring Civic Saturdays uh, to their towns, and, and we have obliged to a certain extent. But uh, what we've really tried to do to meet that uh, demand, which I, exist, which I believe is everywhere right now, is we started a civic seminary, to extend the metaphor, right, where we are training catalytic leaders from towns all over the country to lead their own Civic Saturdays. So when you describe these civic, what are the civic virtues? Like what, what is a civic virtue that Americans need to nurture and maintain? Well, I actually, uh, in the first place, start with act- the foundation of our creed. Uh, y- you think about ideas that are now cliche or people roll their eyes at, but uh, you know, we, we, are, we have to remember at every turn that this country has precious little to hold itself together but a few promises, some of which were written in parchment early on at the founding, uh, and others which were rewritten and recommitted to at various junctures. So the language of the preamble of the Constitution, the language of Gettysburg, the language of I Have a Dream uh, are kind of signal such texts, but uh, so is Chief Seattle's speech uh, as, as he uh, ceded uh, uh, sovereignty, but also warned uh, white settlers in Seattle of, of, uh, of, of the need to kind of preserve a spirit of mutuality. So is Susan B. Anthony's speech at her trial for attempted voting, right? Uh, so are all these other texts that are part of our tradition. And it's through these texts that you remember what it is we're actually trying to do together here, right? And I think uh, out of those texts, you can draw not just the language of equal protection of the laws and life, liberty, and protection, you know, so on and so forth, but uh, virtues that are much more about mutuality, responsibility, service before self, uh, uh, recognizing contribution before consumption. Uh, and, and so we are trying to rekindle a culture of a longer view, but also a deeper sense of obligation to each other. So, Eric, it's, this is, you know, adherence to the basic idea of a social uh, compact. Mm-hmm. Um, but, boy, it feels like that's a, a hobby for people who are not, um, you know, who are thoughtful and engaged and interesting and um, human, um, but uh, but are operating on a just different field in which these things are being um, uh, fought out. Uh, and so how do they engage with the political process right now, which is one in which, um, you know, people are not uh, seeing the worth of the social compact? Yeah. So our view is that uh, you, you put your finger on it. I mean, this is about a social compact. And uh, it may seem a little naive or a little bit uh, beside the point in these times with the headlines that we, you all were just discussing, uh, you know, John, with, with, with David and Emily here. But the, but the fact is that this work of tending anew to the social contract, uh, tending anew to the spirit uh, of mutual obligation, tending anew to the faith you know, democracy is essentially a faith-fueled activity. It only works if enough of us believe it works. And once that belief starts to erode and corrode, it is an incredibly catastrophic cascade of cynicism that takes hold that makes all of us ripe for authoritarians of every stripe and demagogues of every stripe. And so, you know, my view is that what we're talking about here is culture. Culture is upstream of law. 
spirit is upstream of policy, right? The soul is upstream of the state. And look, I spent a lot of time and still I have in my past and I still do engaged in organizing and elections and advocacy on issues that I care about. But uh, I think we in the first place as a country and as a culture have to rekindle uh, this set of commitments uh, and, and this spirit, again, of uh, recognizing that uh, freedom is responsibility, that you got to own a piece of it. And this isn't just, uh, I will say to your other point, um, this is taking hold in all corners of the country, in big towns and, you know, full of uh, progressive, educated people, uh, but also small towns in red places, suburban and exurban communities, uh, you know, from South but Carolina. But is it the progressives in the suburban, exurban no, communities? No, it's a, it's a real sure? mix. Well, look, in, in some of these communities, sure, you're going to draw more of the progressives uh, and I think, you know, our, our friend Jonathan Haidt will talk about uh, the psychological predispositions of who even wants to show up for uh, something that might be about meeting someone different from you. Uh, but the fact is that uh, when you do a Civic Saturday in Athens, Tennessee, uh, when you do, a, you know, a tiny town, when you do a Civic Saturday in, uh, uh, you know, Columbia, South Carolina, um, you're getting a mix that uh, is unlike most of what you see, for instance, in Washington, D.C., or where I live in Seattle, right? You're getting, a, you're having people having to reckon with each other face to face and rediscover not just uh, the ways in which they can, they have to stop demonizing and flaming each other, but actually uh, finding some ways uh, to recognize that there are better ways to argue. It's not the dream of kumbaya and false consensus. It is how can we argue better by in the first place seeing one another and recognizing one another as woven to the same uh, fabric of community. So you mentioned that the groups organize. Does that what do the what concrete actions do they take? If this isn't a progressive movement and it's not part of the resistance, it's not building political action. I would assume. So what kinds of things do people actually go out and do? Well, I mean, it uh, you know, in some communities, it might be how do we address homelessness? Uh, what is our responsibility for? Uh, addressing the acute crisis of homelessness, homelessness, but also then uh, thinking about gentrification and the ways that inequality has uh, uh, made this an almost inevitable consequence of uh, of a boom in a given city. Uh, in another place, it might be about how do we bridge uh, urban-rural divides and make sure that people who live outside uh, of our town, who live in the um, in the more rural small towns, uh, feel connected. So do people try to pass a bill about homelessness or take some concerted action to change the way gentrification operates, or are they just getting together to talk about it? Well, no, I think it depends. If, you know, our, our, the civic seminarians who we've trained um, each lead their communities and gatherings in different ways. In some places, it really will be about let's take action, let's uh, organize to advocate for this ordinance or this bill in the legislature or the city council that might provide for more affordable housing. Uh, let's collect signatures uh, uh, for this campaign to do X. Uh, uh, in other places, it m- might be much more just about um, let's do a civic effort to know your neighbors and to rehumanize the people around you. Let's actually do a story harvesting effort to actually collect the stories of long timers here uh, and to rehumanize those those gaps. Uh, so it will vary between the strictly political and the more kind of Tocquevillian civic social. But in every place, people are trying to figure out how they can stop being spectators and be and instead be do, participants. Do you think this is a, a project that works only at the local level only? I, I mean, I, I'm as depressed and as gloomy about the future of democracy as one can be. But on the other hand, local or local places have to work. They do function. You, if you live in a village, the village functions and people do have to find ways to get along. If they, or, or it or doesn't, they, right? Your last point is crucial, right? Maybe it doesn't work locally, but 
locally, you can't hide behind talking points the same way you can in D.C., right, in, in national politics. But I guess what my question is, is this a venture that you see is this is, the purpose of this is to knit together local communities or that this has some kind of national implication? Uh, I, it has national, national or it has nationwide implications because it is fundamentally bottom up uh, from a, you know, what I call networked localism, right? This is not parochialism. It is not just everybody thinking about their own little corner in an isolated way, but it's recognizing that as you're doing a Civic Saturday in Indianapolis and someone else is doing one in Rochester and someone else is doing one in Tucson uh, and someone else is doing one uh, in Tacoma, um, that there are there's connective tissue there that people are seeking uh, the same answers. They're using some of the same texts or at least prompts and questions. Um, and they're part of a, I don't want to say movement, but they're part of a phenomenon here, right? That uh, of people searching for meaning making that is that takes them out of the awful isolation um, of life on social media, takes them out of the powerlessness of just pure life in the marketplace and reminds them that there is a different way to be, and that is to be together and figure out how to fix stuff together. And I'm actually rather hopeful um, just because our work um, uh, really brings us into contact with people who are uh, trying to uh, rekindle that social compact and rebuild a sense of place and community and spirit uh, in civic life. And uh, you know, the, the, this book that I've got here is uh, a collection of some of the sermons that I've done and delivered at Civic Saturdays around the country, but it's framed by this larger question of how do we in a time right now where everybody's doubting democracy, where people are wondering whether, you know, whether democracy is done, uh, how do we actually rekindle a sense of belief that it is possible? Uh, and that's on us. Uh, so, Eric, leave us where, where if people are interested in, in, in uh, Civic Saturday, where yes. should they go? They should go to uh, our website, uh, which is citizenuniversity.us, uh, and you'll find there uh, not only information about a Civic Saturday that might be happening near you, but if you're interested in actually leading one of these uh, sign up uh, uh, for our civic seminary. Uh, the idea ultimately here uh, is that we're inviting people from every walk of life, not just uh, people with privilege, but people who have a sense of responsibility in every part of the country uh, to figure out how they can lead their own. So citizenuniversity.us is how you can plug into that. And, uh, and the book is called Become America. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, David. Thanks, Emily and John. And now let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're uh, finished with your Civic Saturday and having your your drunken Saturday, Emily Bazelon, what are you going to be chattering about? Like many people, I have been watching the latest season of Game of Thrones with excited but very mixed feelings. And I was especially ambivalent about the latest episode. I will say no more. No spoilers in this chatter. I am going to recommend, though, an essay in the L.A. Review of Books by Aaron Beatty. Um, it's actually an exchange between Aaron and a couple of other people. But he has this really interesting explanation of Daenerys' behavior in that episode. And if you're just wrestling with these issues, um, it's the it was one of my favorite things that I found to read about this. I also loved Willa Paskin's discussion of Daenerys as a feminist or not feminist in Slate. So anyway, if you need a little bit more thinking or reading about Game of Thrones last season, episode five, take a look. John Dickerson, what is your chatter? My chatter is about something called the Casebooks Project at the University of Cambridge. It is a digital archive of the casebooks of Simon Foreman and Richard Napier. They were astrologers who produced one of the largest surviving sets of, of medical records in history. Now, they happen to operate in the decades around 1600. So there are 80,000 of these entries, and they are, first of all, just beautiful 
to look at in their handwriting, but they're totally indecipherable. They're, they're impossible, except that the good people at the University of Cambridge have, in fact, deciphered them. And so they go through all of these cases, which include maladies like being childless, um, having a disordered mind-gut connection, venereal diseases, inability to have children, um, being uh, beset by evil spirits and angelic spirits, witchcraft. Um, and I just want to read you a couple of cases um, uh, to give you some sense of what's going on here. Um, William Gowen of Bindham was 28 years old, and on Wednesday the 3rd of April in 1605 at 11.38 a.m., he came in and complained that the left side and heart and round about his side and back offends him with a windiness. He has flatulent melancholy. And so he was given uh, something for his flatulent melancholy. John Faldo came in in 1614, fretting and choleric and melancholy. Um, People also came in when they fell into fits of love, as Edward Purcell did. He says that he is so great a sinner that his sins cannot be forgiven. Affection to a young woman who also loves him gives him troubles. Um, It is amazing, but the people I like the most are uh, those who came in because they had studied too much. Um, Parnell Clark had green, the green sickness has been distracted for four days, taken by overmuch study of her book. Parnell is a woman's name, which I didn't know, um, is very fearful and raves much and was frightened and cannot better it. These individual items are, um, just fascinating. And the fact that they went through, and there's a lot of it that's actually quite gross, but if you're into human, uh, the history of, I mean, if you imagine it's 1600 um, and somebody comes in whose mind is troubled with ill thoughts and is disposed to do uh, unwell to their brother, like how they piece together some both sort of quasi-religious, medical, and astrological response to this. It was, uh, it rewarded reading through these. You can find them online at the Casebook Project. Cool. I have a double chatter. First of all, a little bit of log rolling for Atlas Obscura. I know that I've talked about Atlas Obscura's trips in the past. I am just unduly, absurdly proud of our 2020 trips, which we just announced our lineup yesterday. And it's just amazing. And you should totally check out our trips and come on one of our trips. You can come with us and camp out at the gates of hell in Turkmenistan. You can gorge yourself on a food adventure across Naples. You can explore with us one of the last untouched forests on the planet in Borneo, and you're probably going to find and discover new species while you're doing it. We're doing it with a bunch of scientists. There are dozens and dozens of these trips. They're marvelous. And go to atlasobscura.com slash trips and check them out. Or email me at david at atlasobscura.com, and I will point you to a great trip. Um, They're just, yeah, they're truly the most special thing that we do, and, and you should check it out. My other chatter is just to point you to a Twitter thread from someone called Horse Whisperer, at Horse Whisperer, but (laughs) Whisperer is W-I-S-P-E-R-E-R, so no H in Whisperer. And it was, it's a, it's a Twitter thread about working for a narcissist. And it's it's obviously uh, pegged to the president and what it must be like to work for the president. And it's a description about what it was like to work for this narcissist and the different strategies that people pursue Uh, when your boss is a narcissist, including one called proclaim and disclaim, where you announce something to please the boss and then walk it back gradually later. So you just make it make something up and then walk it back. Another is, is kick the can where you where you agree to do something and then just 
just never do it and just sort of push it down the road. Um, and it, but the key is always never to embarrass your boss, that your boss cannot be embarrassed. They cannot be, you always have to admire and praise. And as long as you admire and praise, you're fine. But once you embarrass the boss, you're dead. Um, it's a great, it's a great, it's a great thread about, about this. And, um, you know, super depressing because it makes it seem like working in the White House must be a living nightmare, but so it goes. Also, great listener chatters this week. A lot of whale listener chatters. You sent us a bunch of whale listener chatters, also a seal listener chatter. Um, but I feel like we've had enough whales in the past couple of weeks, so I'm going to forego those. Um, and instead, look at a chatter from Hank Van Dyke. And Hank Van Dyke points to a Max Boot op-ed, which I think is in the Washington Post. Is it in the Washington Post? I'm pretty sure it's in the Washington Post, that uh, Max wrote about how it's time to have an atheist in the White House and how we have all these candidates running for office on the Democratic side and not one of them is an atheist and how it's become the absolutely forbidden thing to be in American politics as an atheist. But yet there is a huge number of Americans who are atheists and we should find find a place for them and that place should be the Oval Office. So uh, check that Peace out, and please tweet your chatters to us at at SlateGabFest, or uh, you can post them on Facebook at facebook.com slash GabFest. That is our show for today. The GabFest was produced today by Danielle Hewitt, sitting in for Jocelyn, who is uh, out somewhere else doing other things. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Audio. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Audio. Stop laughing at me, John. Alan Pang at CBS helped out John. Don't stop laughing. Stop laughing, laughing at me. At me. John, you are you don't you're unemployed, <laughs> man, starting tomorrow. You have no position to laugh. <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest and tweet your chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and a laughing John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? So interesting controversy at my alma mater, Harvard, this week. So Ronald Sullivan, a law professor at Harvard, criminal lawyer and a law professor who has a very distinguished record of uh, criminal defense work on behalf of some famous clients and also also or some infamous clients and also on behalf of unknown clients for whom he did, uh, you know, really excellent and, and admirable criminal defense work, uh, had was on the defense team for Harvey Weinstein, the grotesque Me Too, uh, accused of various forms of sexual assault. And I'm, I'm not actually sure. I don't I don't have in my head what Weinstein is accused of, but bad, bad, bad thing. Sexual assault in he, New York. S- sexual assault in New York. So Sullivan uh, and his wife, whose name I think is Janet Robinson. Stephanie Robinson. Correctly. Stephanie Robinson, excuse me, are faculty deans. At- that was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, Go to slate.com slash GabFestPlus to become a member today.